was suggesting to me, like, you know, there's not a lot of behavioral science stuff on YouTube. And I was like, that's right. And I can, I can change that because I know about this. I'm very interesting to, to realize that this isn't my first YouTube channel. This is actually my third YouTube channel. <laughs> so the channel has gone through a big transition. What I'm really more interested in now is like, how did all of these studies come out saying that all this stuff was true, but actually it's not true. Today we're joined by Pete Judo. Pete Judo is a video creator on YouTube, creating content around behavioral sciences and economics. Do you understanding different examples, concepts, and biases? It, no matter what niche you're in, right? The chances are that your audience is like a pyramid. As an expert, make content that is for beginners and you'll reach a larger audience. And so I was watching this guy called Gotham Chess. He's kind of the only channel I want to watch because he's covered every single beginner topic. If you're teaching things on YouTube, you don't have to be the best at that thing. The best teachers are the ones who are able to, who know a little bit more than the, their audience and are able to communicate that in a way that is easy to understand. And in today's episode, we talked about how Pete met his hero and role model, Rory Sutherland. We talked about Pete's thought process between explore and exploit. And we also talked about the differences with being the subject matter expert and being good at teaching. Welcome to my conversation with Pete Judo. So whenever I think about like behavior science and economics, it's sort of like the intersection of like psychology and economics. And it's basically a scientific study of like how we humans perceive, interpret and make decisions around the world environment, like the world around us. And there are like people like Adam Smith, like Richard Thaler, Daniel Kahneman from I think this is like a very, very interesting conversation because I have you here today, P. We're going to talk about you as a content creator who made content around behavioral economics and sciences. So the first question I wanted to ask is, what was your first exposure to behavioral science and economics? Yeah, thanks, Alex, for having me on your podcast. So my first exposure to behavioral economics was back when I was 16 years old. And I just happened to watch this TED talk by a guy called... Dan Ariely, who's a very famous behavioral economist. And uh, yeah, so he wrote a book called Predictably Irrational, which is very famous. And when I watched his TED talk, um, I was just completely enthralled by the ideas that he was presenting. You know, one example is this idea of the decoy effect, very famous concept in behavioral science. So the, the decoy effect is when you have three options, two of them are very different. And then the third one is just a slightly worse version of one of the other two. Right. So the example that he gave in the talk was, imagine you're trying to book a holiday. You have to choose between going to Rome or going to Paris. Uh, but then there's this third option that's available to you. And it's Paris, but without coffee in the morning. Right. If you want coffee, you've got to pay five euros for coffee in the morning. Right. Now, what he found very interestingly in his research is that this third option, while it's obviously inferior to the other two, doesn't serve any kind of functional purpose in that way. Um, it actually shifted people's preferences. So when there's this third option that's Paris without coffee, then suddenly Paris with coffee becomes more popular. But when you change it to Rome without coffee, then suddenly Rome with coffee becomes more popular. And so I thought it was absolutely fascinating that this useless third option that nobody was picking actually changed people's preferences. And so I kind of dove really deep into the this idea that the, the way that choices are presented to us and the way that our environment is laid out in front of us actually affects our decisions every day. And then I realized that um, actually, you know, these ideas can be very powerful in a creative way um, for 
helping brands solve their problems. And the person who brought that to life for me was a guy called Rory Sutherland, who I owe a lot to. So he he's extremely famous. He's actually a, a, an advertising person, not a scientist by training. Um, but he came across the ideas in behavioral economics from people like Richard Thaler, like you just mentioned. And, uh, and he, he realized that the way of thinking of behavioral science actually is a fantastic way to generate solutions for brands and companies. So, you know, one example that he gave in his TED talk was, um, imagine you have a, a train company who is trying to improve people's, um, perception of the trains, right? Now, the first, you know, the first thing that most train companies or governments would think to do is improve the speed of the trains, right? If people can get from A to B faster, that's an improvement of the service. The thing is, improving the speed of the trains is very expensive, right? It's extremely expensive. And governments like the UK are spending billions of pounds and many years to try and improve the speed of the trains by a little bit. And the overall effect on people's perception of the service is probably not as high as they would like to think, right? And so Rory said, well, you know, rather than spending billions and billions of pounds on this project, why not spend 1% of that budget and you can hire models to walk up and down the train and hand canapes out to the passengers? And I thought that's such a fascinating way to think about the same problem. And he said, you know, imagine what the difference would be in terms of people who want to use the train <laughs> when you have that kind of service in place, right? And so... You know, with that kind of thinking, um, I became really fascinated with behavioral science because it showed how uh, you can use people's perception as a way of improving their lives, essentially. And, and actually, it's a creative solution to a lot of problems. Yeah. So I, I, I realized that, you know, people only ever interpret the world through their perceptual reality. Like the, the, the objective reality as human beings is in a way irrelevant. And so if you can improve people's perception of the world or perception of their situation or perception of their experience, then you're improving their actual experience because there is nothing else. You only have your perception. And so that's kind of the, the way of thinking that I, I became very obsessed with. And you know, I, I ended up pursuing it formally in university. I did a, a degree in psychology and then I did a postgraduate degree in behavioral economics and then after university, I ended up working for Rory Sutherland, um, which was a dream come true as a childhood hero of mine, the guy who inspired me to get into this field in the first place. It was awesome to work for him for two years. And I got to apply that kind of thinking to a whole host of household name brands, um, you know, brands whose products we use on a day to day basis. And that was really fun creatively and as a creative person. It was it was really great to do that for work. Uh, but what I realized quickly was that um, there's value in behavioral science beyond just helping brands make cool products. Uh, there's a way that we can use behavioral science to improve people's lives every day. And so now I end up, now I work for one of the major banks of the UK uh, in an audit function. And our, the purpose of our work is to really see how we can improve people's financial decision-making through behavioral science to help them save more money and make the most out of their finances. So, that's that's very rewarding work for me that I do now, and it's great to be part of a team that has that kind of um, more altruistic focus, still applying these tools of behavioral science that we have talked about so far. I'm a huge believer of your perception is your reality. The options that you presented really prompts you to think in certain ways because, like, I think you even joy, like, even if you think about like wealth, it's all about references. Like, you always think about like, do I, am I making more than my peers? Am I spending more time in work than my peers? And if I'm not, then you feel maybe a little bit insecure about yourself, not as happy about yourself. 
as let's say comparing with yourself in the past right yeah this is one of the most fundamental concepts in behavioral science is the idea that the human brain works through comparison and we don't it's very hard for us to understand anything without something to compare it to and that's very useful generally in day-to-day -day life um, but it can also hold us back in terms of our enjoyment like you say and so you know for, surprisingly like when they do studies on how satisfied are employees with their income the objective amount of money that that person is earning is not the biggest determinant of how satisfied they are the biggest determinant is uh, how does their salary rank in comparison to the people who sit around them in the office, right? And that is so fascinating to me. And it's, you know, we see, have we've seen similar results from things like, uh, you know, how satisfied are people with their house? If your house is the biggest one on the block, then you feel great. If it's small, mm -hmm. the smallest one, then it's, it's not great, even if objectively it's quite a big house, right? Yeah. And so, you know, this this kind of thinking is is super interesting to, to think about and um i wanted to wind back to a little bit to sort of your university time that you spent studying psychology in undergrad and behavior economics in your master both in university warwick that's so right yeah. i you, you said that you're part of um the behavioral insight team at warwick what does the club do <laughs> so we're essentially a student society um and we had kind of two two sub teams within the big team so uh, I was in charge of what we called the engagement team. So our job was really to um, sort of almost be like behavioral science evangelists, where we would be uh, sort of preaching the good word about <laughs> behavioral science to the rest of the, the university. So we would organize like talks and events and uh, workshops where we would bring in experts in the field, or sometimes we would run them ourselves and work with people and sort of get them exposed to these ideas they maybe haven't heard of before. So mm -hmm. that was a really great experience for me because um, one, because it taught me how to communicate behavioral science in an effective way because I was the one often teaching in these seminars. Right. Um, and that's a skill that proved to be very useful once I started the YouTube channel as well. And then uh, it was also useful because they got me a lot of exposure to um, many you know, prominent people in the field. And that's actually how I came in contact with Rory Sutherland, who ended up hiring me after university was through that experience. Uh, and then the other team that we had was, uh, we called it like the nudge unit. And so they would uh, try and design nudges, you know, behavioral interventions on campus to get students to engage in certain behaviors. Like, um, for example, like we want to get people to uh, reduce their talking in the quiet zone of the library, right? And so one uh, idea that they used was something from behavioral science, which to be honest, is a little bit shaky in terms of how well it replicates in the data in this in the literature, but there's this idea of the watching eyes effect. And so the concept is that if you put a pair of eyes on the wall, uh, it, people will feel like they're being watched. And when they feel like they're being watched, then they will act in a more sort of socially responsible way and therefore not talk. Again, doesn't replicate super consistently in the data, but uh, it's just an interesting idea from behavioral science. And so they integrated a kind of uh, watching eyes sign in the library where they essentially just printed on a piece of paper, like, please don't talk in the mm. library, but then the only graphic on the sign were these big pair of eyes that were like watching you. Um, yeah. So they, they engaged in things like that and, and, and uh, basically got some hands-on experience designing what we call nudges or behavioral interventions, just little thing, little tweaks that we add to people's environment to change their decision-making. 
I see, I see. Was there one behavior intervention that was the most memorable to you? That that team did, <laughs> uh, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> um, but you know, I've I've worked on lots of behavioral interventions uh, in my time. One of my favorite types of projects to do is like redesigning the user interface for people um, when they interact with a certain like digital product or app. Because mm -hmm. there's so much you can do in a digital environment in terms of redesigning, team, you know, how people interact. And so, um, for example, if you want more people to get through your signup journey for your new service, right, drop off is obviously a huge problem for a lot of brands. And so one way that you can do that is to make the sense of progress feel really meaningful as people are going yeah. through. And so if you design your progress bar in a way where people progress through the first half of it very quickly, and then sort of backload it with slower items. Um, when once people get over that kind of hump in the beginning, then they're less likely to drop off towards the end. So little ideas like that kind of blow people's mind when you tell them about it. And mm -hmm. uh, but actually, you know, little tweaks like that we've shown they're pretty inexpensive and they can have pretty uh, non insignificant <laughs> effects. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. I, I think about like a lot of our experiences now or for like digital first, whether it's like mobile apps, website signups, or even like things like newsletters or like media formatting. I think these are all like pretty really cool stuff that, that you guys were doing there. I wanted to um talk a little bit about towards the end of your university time. Um I think it was around COVID. Um you were playing this conference of like uh at, at Warwick and you you want a keynote speaker and you're like, why don't we just like reach out to like Rory? And at UD, we should have Rory. And Rory said, yes. Like, can you tell us a little bit about like the backstory of that? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. So we, we're organizing this big event at the end of the year. We called it the Behavioral Science Summit. And it's essentially yeah, a big conference where we get, uh, you know, really prominent people or as, as prominent as possible people in the field that you can get as a student with no budget um, to come and speak at our conference for free, right? And so it's obviously very generous of anyone to come and talk at all. One of the speakers of the day should be a headliner, somebody who is, you know, pretty famous in order to yep. draw in a big crowd, right? That makes sense, right? And so uh, I thought, well, why don't we just <laughs> screw it? Let's just ask Rory Sutherland, right? Like this guy who's you know, my childhood hero, this one who inspired me to get into the field in the first place. He lives in London. It's not too far from Warwick. Mm. And, um, you know, and let's if you don't ask, you don't get, right? And so you may as well just go for it. And so I actually got my friend Merla, who had a bit more clout than I did at the time, uh, to to reach out to him. And she did. And uh, and he, yeah, he, he very generously said he'd love to come and speak. And I was over the moon, obviously. You know, imagine meeting your childhood hero or like having your childhood hero scheduled into your <laughs> into your yeah. schedule is like pretty yep. insane. But yeah, we were all ready to go. Rory was all signed up and ready to go. And then COVID happens. And obviously, in the beginning, it was a lot of uncertainty. We didn't know how long it was going to last for. We didn't know whether it would interrupt. Uh, we didn't know whether it was going to be a one-week thing or a one-year thing. You know, like there was really no idea. We kept the conference alive, the idea of it, for a few weeks, even despite being in lockdown. And then I think when we were like three weeks out from the conference, then we thought, this doesn't look like it's, <laughs> it's ending anytime soon. <laughs> so... We had to call it and it was sucked because obviously we were so excited to do it. We had all these people booked already and prepped and ready to go. Uh, then we had to cancel it. So we canceled it, but I thought, well, let's not do nothing. 
Um, so let's start a YouTube channel uh, for the for the Warwick Behavioral Insights team. And let's just like get the speakers to submit recordings of their talks and we can just upload them to YouTube. And that can we ask Rory, we ask Rory fully expecting him to say no, because it's like he's busy and it's locked down. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like who wants to do anything extra? And um but he said yes, you know, he's and that just really speaks to his character. He's a super generous guy. Video, I emailed him being like, Hey, like I'm the one organizing this event that you agreed to. Do you mind sending us a recording? Um and then off the back of that, he was like, hey, let's also have a call. And so then I had my first call with him over Zoom, which was mm. completely surreal. Um, I was so nervous. I like could barely get words out of my mouth. Um, yeah. And then, so then, yeah. So then after that, um, Rory and I at least were in touch. I was emailing him every couple of months. Uh, and then I did my master's degree for a year in lockdown. And then afterwards, I was like, you know, I'm qualified now. Can I come work for you? <laughs> and um <laughs> And so he said, well, you know, we have some positions open and you're welcome to apply. I can't guarantee you that you'll get it. But so I applied and I ended up getting it. So that was really, um, yeah, very, very fortunate sequence of events and, you know, great experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. And he was uh, one of the very first early advocate of your YouTube channel. Um, he really pushed for you just putting yourself out there. And it was COVID. It was kind of like the right place, right time kind of moment where like, you you were sitting at home. You wanted to make content. You've been studying this for a while, and there wasn't much videos out there talking about behavioral economics and sciences. Like, yeah. and you posted your, I don't know if that was your first video, but one of your earliest videos was about like oh behavior economics in eight eight minutes. Like that was how, first how video. is that? Yeah, yeah. How is that? Yeah. So, so the first thing to you know, if you're an aspiring creator listening to this podcast, right, the first thing to to realize is that this isn't my first YouTube channel. This is actually my third YouTube channel. <laughs> I've been dabbling with YouTube since I was 16. My first YouTube channel was uh, me playing Fortnite, <laughs> I think, right? And like, you know, as any gamer does, you just like upload your games and like nobody watched them. And that's fine, right? But like, at least I, you know, got into like the practice of like learning, how do I upload? How do I make a thumbnail? How do I do some very basic yeah. editing? You get those skills, right. even if nobody's watching your videos, right? And that's fine. And then I started a second channel, which I ran for like, a year and a half during university um kind of sporadically not not as not as consistently as i do now um was that was it the gym channel that you had hey you know about it yeah <laughs> so that was a gym channel i ran it for a year and a half it got like 140 subscribers in almost two years <laughs> so you know not like huge growth um but again like it was invaluable experience for starting this third channel um uh, because that's where I learned to edit. That's where I learned to film. That's, I bought my first camera while I was running that channel. So like all of these like early um, hurdles uh, that you have to go through as a creator in the beginning were, were covered by those channels that nobody watched in the beginning, which was great. You know, it's, it's, a lot, it's very liberating actually to have no audience because you could just totally mess up and it's fine. And then, yeah. And so then in lockdown, I realized that, okay, not only can I not work out, so I can't really make gym content, <laughs> but also, um, you know, Rory was suggesting to me, like, you know, there's not a lot of behavioral science stuff on YouTube. And I was like, that's right. And I can, I can change that because I know about this. I'm very passionate about it. And I know how to make videos too, because of those two other YouTube channels. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. And I started it. And this, th- that first video, the one that you mentioned is actually a condensed version of a talk that I've been giving at the University of Warwick for 
two years already. And so I was, that's the reason why the delivery was so smooth and so <laughs> good for a first YouTube video <laughs> is because like, you know, this is a, this is a talk that I've given like six times, you know, in front of a live audience before. So I just turned it into a video form. You can tell it's my first YouTube video. I didn't even make, do my hair. My eczema was bad. Like my room was messy. Like it was like, it was like a total mess. Um, but I just went for it anyway. And like, and it, and it did really well. I think it got like, uh, almost a thousand views on like my first video, which is like unbelievable for, for a new channel. Um, mm -hmm. I got like, I think I got like over 140 subscribers off that first video, which is more than my entire other channel for like two years. <laughs> right. And so then I was like, well, you know, this seems to be, this seems good. Let's keep doing this. And it was really fun for me because I was so passionate about behavioral science at that time anyway. So it was like, well, I just get to talk about the interesting things that I'm learning about uh, and make videos about it and people want to hear about it. So that's really cool. So yeah, that's, that's how it started, man. It's just, it's just from that. I appreciate that, man. Like if you, like if you dare to like, just take a look of like Pete's channel, like it really is crazy. Cause you started off just like talking a lot about like different concepts. Um, and you, you start, and then you have some sort of like industry examples of like McDonald's or like Starbucks, how brands want you to perceive them. And then you start talking, have a lot more like sit down, just conversations about like behavioral science. And now um, I think it's really picking up with like sort of the different stories and case studies of like academia. How, how do you go about thinking about like, what's the next video to make? Yeah. Great question. It's my favorite question to answer. So there's a very useful framework actually from behavioral science that is, is incredibly useful for all kinds of different parts of life, but especially for creators with their own content. So it's the, the framework is explore versus exploit. And so the idea with explore is that you're trying something new and seeing whether people will like it. Right. And then exploit is when you found like of all the things that you've tried so far, you just want to repeat that thing again right it's like it's like going back to your favorite restaurant right you go back to your mm -hmm. favorite restaurant do you try something new on the menu that maybe is maybe you like it maybe you don't or do you just order the same thing which you know you love now this is how i think about making content on youtube where i'm like am i am i exploring today or am i exploiting today right and if i'm exploring that means that i am trying a different style of content to see if the response will be better and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it'll be terrible um, but you have to kind of be okay with that. Like treat it like an experiment. Like I'm going to see if people want to see this type of content. I want to make it. Let's see if people want to watch it. Sometimes they do. Most of the time they don't. Right. And that's totally, mm -hmm. that's totally fine. So like you say, you know, in the beginning, I very much had to, you know, it, this is how you have to start off as a creator. In my opinion is that you just have to be like open to exploring tons of different styles of content, right? Like, you know, what niche you want to fall into, but in terms of format and layout and even topic that you're talking about, you have to be really even like titles and thumbnails, titles, <laughs> thumbnails, everything. Like, you know, oftentimes people think they have to plan everything exactly how their YouTube channel is going to be right from the beginning. It's not the case, right? You don't have to do that. It just make a video, see what people see how people respond. If they don't respond well, try something else, right? And just and you just keep experimenting. That's how it works. You just got to keep experimenting, trying new things until you find something that people respond well to. And then once you find something that people respond well to, um, then you got to double down, right? You double down for a while and you keep, you, you make lots of videos in a similar format or similar topic that you know will perform well. And that's how you're going to grow until that style of video starts to, you know, it'll probably start to like go down at some point and then you go back into exploring again right and so this is you can kind of you can very clearly see that through 
my channel feed. That's that's how I've approached this channel where I'll explore for sometimes up to six months. I'm exploring different types of content, one video a week for six months exploring, right? So like, that's how long it takes. And then you find something that hits and then you go for it. So as a good example of this, like the first uh, series of mine that really took off was the series I did called Fact Checked, right? So it took me 11 months to get to 1000 subscribers. Okay. 11 months of weekly uploads to get to 1000 subscribers, right? It took, it took a long time. And then, and then I decided to make a video called, I, I, and yeah, I decided to make a new video called fact checked. And the idea was to do a react video with effort is how I described it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that I would like watch somebody else's advice that was based in behavioral science. And then I would provide like my expert opinion on like yeah. whether I, what, what they were saying was legitimate or not. And I knew that the react, like the thinking was, I know the react format works well on YouTube. Yeah. And I feel like I can provide unique perspective on these popular creators. And I started that when I was at like 900 subscribers. And then that one video went crazy. Like it got like, I don't know, 5,000 views or something, which was like insane for a small creator to get that kind of viewership. And then, so then I just, I made like six more of the same style of video, um, but with different, you know, different video that I was uh, fact-checking each time. And they all did generally pretty well. And I went from 1,000 to 5,000 subscribers in like three months, right? So it took me nine, took me almost the whole year to get to 1,000, and then took and then it took me like three months to get to like 5,000, right? So like that's that's what it's like um, once you find once you've experimented enough and you found the thing that works, that's how quickly you grow, right? But you need to do that experimenting first, and sometimes people hit gold sooner, right? It's, it is kind of luck in a way, like you got to explore different things see what people respond to. Sometimes you find something sooner on that people respond well to. Sometimes it takes 11 months or longer. And that was actually the next question that I wanted to ask, which is like, what are, what are channels that you consume? Especially when I think about, even now there isn't a lot of like behavioral science channels out there. Like yeah. who do you look up to on YouTube and what kind of content do you consume personally? So I, I it changes a lot, right? And it depends on like, you know, what, my, what I'm interested in at the time. Um, in the beginning, when, when I was doing the fact checked series, you could tell the kind of content creators that I was looking at. That is kind of the productivity guys, like so Matt Diavella, Ali Abdal, um, uh, Better Ideas, John, you know Tom Thomas Frank, that gang. Like I was consuming a lot of their content because I wanted to talk about the same topics as them, but with a behavioral science twist to it or a behavioral science focus, right? So it's a bit more evidence based. Mm. Um, so that that was kind of content I consumed back then. And then, but you know, I've, I've engaged in lots of different types. Like I watched lots of cooking channels, for example, that I get inspiration from, you know, you wouldn't think so, right. For guess the content that I make, but people like Joshua Weissman, for example, right. Now Joshua Weissman will have like a, a recipe with tons of different steps, but what he's nailed in or what his team has nailed in so well over the last few years, if you watch his old stuff compared to his current stuff is cutting out everything that is like, not interesting <laughs> right it is like super aggressive in the way that he cuts his videos where you know mm -hmm. if if you have to mix a bowl for 30 seconds he's only going to show that for like literally one second <laughs> or let's right? say that like 0.5 yeah 0.5 of a second on on screen because he knows that like if he tries to make it last longer you'll got to stop watching right so that's why his content so, so i you know it's little bits like that that you pick up from different channels that you watch like oh like i have to be way more aggressive with like cutting out dead time in my video or uh, I was really into chess for a while 
And so I was watching this guy called Gotham Chess, right? Gotham Chess. You know Gotham Sacrifice Chess? the Rock. Yeah, that's the guy. So Gotham Chess is fascinating because he uploads every day. He does no editing and he gets like 300,000 views a video, right? At least. So it's like, well, what is he doing that like no one else is doing that allows him to be so successful, right? And so I was learning from him and I was like, you know, as I'm as a beginner in chess, he's kind of the only channel I want to watch because he's covered every single beginner topic in chess. And I was like, well, let me take that inspiration and let me apply that to my channel. So if anyone is interested in behavioral science, I have covered every single basic beginner concept in behavioral science, loss aversion, prospect theory, decoy effects, you know, endowment effects, like all of these basic concepts that to me are like, as second nature as like breathing air, right? Like my ability to recall these concepts. But the thing is, when you're a beginner, um, you just, you want to know the really basic stuff, right? And the basic yeah. stuff is what has the biggest mass appeal. And so that's what I, that's, that's what I realized, like Gotham Chess, he's a great chess player, but he's not, he's not the best chess player in the world. Like there are better chess players out there who also make YouTube videos, but they're nowhere near as successful as him on YouTube because their content isn't accessible to a to a basic audience, to a beginner audience. And if you, the way I thought about it was like, if you, no matter what niche you're in, right, the chances are that your audience is like a pyramid, okay, where mm -hmm. the people at the top of the pyramid, which is probably where you are, if you're making a YouTube channel about it, is that you're right at the very top, right? So you have the most knowledge of everybody. And if you make content that is only designed to appeal to people who are in that same top of the pyramid is you that's a very small number of people that you're appealing to whereas right at the bottom of the pyramid the widest base of the pyramid is where the beginners are right most people are beginners in your field and so as an expert make content that is for beginners and you'll reach a larger audience and that's something which i really learned from gotham chess uh, that i applied to my own youtube channel and you wouldn't again if you don't think about it <laughs> just based on looking at my feed but like this is where the inspiration comes from uh, is like taking lessons from other creators and thinking about what is it actually that they're not copying, but just thinking, mm -hmm. what are they doing differently that makes them so successful? Cool. 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 I, it kind of reminds me of like this concept of like curse of knowledge, which is like sometimes when, when you get yourself into sort of the top of the pyramid, you weren't able to see the subject. And then in this case, like behavior science, the same way beginners do. So like, I think people like Gotham Chess, it's like a great example of like someone who tried to see from the perspective of someone who's just a beginner and try to really provide value to his YouTube videos, like being very, I guess, beginner friendly with like his way of terminology, articulating different moves and strategy. Then let's say, about the, the top of the top of the player like if you watch like Madness Carson streams like you will realize like he would just be making moves and you're just watching that and you sometimes a lot of times that like, you don't know what he's thinking but like Gotham Chess would be someone who like like this is what I'm gonna do this is what he's doing in a way that it's like I guess entertaining but also like very easy to understand exactly and you, as a creator you have to realize that like yeah, you, know, you don't have to be the best. This, this also, it very much helps me with imposter syndrome, which is another thing which a lot of creators suffer from, especially if they're like 
teaching on YouTube, right? Which is kind of the genre that I'm in as well. If you're teaching things on YouTube, you don't have to be the best at that thing to teach because you, the people who are the best aren't always the best teachers. They're just really good at doing it, right? The best teachers are the ones who are able to, who know a little bit more than the, their audience and are able to communicate that in a way that is easy to understand. And so, yeah, that really, you know, that kind of, that framework of thinking is really helpful, I find, you know, for a lot of creators who I speak to is like, don't worry about not being the best. Like, you're the, you're the best at teaching. You're not the best at the thing that you're teaching, right? And that's, there's a difference there. You seems like a very scientific person, very methodological um, with mm-hmm. the way that you think, you create. Was there anything that was part of your routine that you think helped you become more creative? Uh, setting deadlines for yourself. So this, I know this, that sounds like really left field. Okay, so have you? You've probably heard of this analogy before, but it's the story of the potters, the pottery class, right? So you have two groups of people. One is told, make the best pot that you can make this semester. And then the other group is told, you have to make 100 pots this semester, right? Um, Regardless of quality. And then what you find at the end is that the people who make 100 pots not only made 100 pots, but they also made better quality pots at the end of the semester. So I think that that kind of approach is also super relevant for YouTube, right? Like the more videos you make, the better at making videos you get. And it's, it is really a numbers game where you want to be pumping out a lot of content and consciously improving your ability with each video. And you only get that, like those incremental improvements are small, but they really add up once you've made 200 videos, right? So you want to make 200 videos before you even hope to have any kind of success really. Right. And so it's like, and so one of the best things that you can do for yourself is to set yourself strict deadlines. So for, for me, I had a pretty demanding like work schedule outside of YouTube. So the most that I could do was one a week, right? And that's me basically sacrificing at least like from like Wednesday to Sunday, all of my spare time is basically making YouTube videos. Then Monday and Tuesday, I have a little bit of private, you know, there's a time with my family or whatever. As you should, as you should. As you should, yeah, do that. That's healthy, right? But like, but I was like, I think I can, in one week, if I try really hard in one week, every week, I can make a video that I'm proud of. That is the best, that is a video that is the best that I can do and that I'm proud to put on my channel. And so I committed to that, right? Some people can, some people have more spare time they can do two a week, right? That's great, good for you. But for me, it was one a week. And by setting that hard deadline, there's no, when you, when, you, when you run a YouTube channel, there's no, there's no boss, right? There's nobody imposing on you any kind of deadline, right? You can do whatever you want. So set yourself, be your own boss, set yourself your own deadline and say, every week I'm going to push out a video, no matter what. And when you do that, um, you end up making so much more videos, right? What I find as soon as I, as soon as I turn off the deadline, as soon as I go, I'm just going to chill for a bit. I make nothing. Like I literally, I, I, my creativity just dissipates and I make nothing. Right. And so you need the pressure. You need the pressure to actually start and turn on the camera and hit record and boot up the editing software and actually get into it. Right. And there'll be weeks and days where you're not feeling it. But then because it's, it's this, you have this pressure, you still do it anyway. And that's how you properly improve as a creator. Yeah. It, like another way that I'm seeing you answer is if like setting deadlines are really focusing on like getting started, getting that momentum 
it's like riding a bicycle right like you feel like your creativity yeah. comes when you start rolling when you start getting into the flow as if like instead of just like today i'm not feeling it i'm just gonna wait and see like if one day i'm gonna wake up with creativity and ideas is that is that what you're getting at yeah if you if you have that approach you'll never make anything i've made videos with eczema with bad sleep with terrible lighting with spelling errors in the final product right like it doesn't matter like the point the point is you need you need to stop making excuses and turn on your camera and start filming <laughs> right like that's that is that is like the hardest part and once once you yeah when you have a deadline you you force yourself to do it that's fine you know what i mean like it's part of the process and as you know i'm, I'm not i'm not a huge youtuber i'm a medium sized youtuber and so you know the the next step is to continue to make mistakes and improve until i get become until i make videos that are of the quality of a huge youtuber right so that's awesome. Yeah. And the process is often more more gradual than you think, right? Because yeah. you're making, let's say, 200 pottery. But in this case, you're making 200 or even more videos. And yeah. like, it's, not even, it's not even like reels or short form. It's not even like a picture. It's a full video with tons of research into it. Um, with exactly. Every single one of yours. So. Think, I'm making one video a week. How many weeks are there in a year, right? Like, it's, it's going to take years to get to the point where you're like, Oh, actually, what I'm making now is pretty good. And the best, the best barometer you have to see whether you're improving is if you watch your video from a year ago and you cringe a bit. Mm, if you cringe, cringe a bit at your own content, yeah. If you cringe a little bit at your own content, you're like, "That's good," because that means that I'm now better, right? And I would never make something like that now, but mm -hmm. that's okay. Like you know, I I put that video out, I made it, and now. I'm on to, and now I'm on to better, bigger and better things, right? So you should always be cringing at your old videos. I think that's a good sign of progress. If you're not, that means you're not improving. <laughs> what are your goals for the next year or two? Yeah. The, so the channel has gone through a big transition over the last few months, uh, as you may have seen, where in the beginning, like I said, I was very focused on teaching behavioral science. That was really the singular focus of the channel. Um, the problem is that I found is that uh, a lot of behavioral science doesn't replicate, right? We already talked about the watching eyes thing earlier. That's a, <laughs> that's just one example, right? There's lots of other examples, unfortunately. And as a result of that, I've, you know, while I was so enthusiastic about behavioral science in the beginning, I've really started to, what I'm really more interested in now is like, how did all of these studies come out saying that all this stuff was true, but actually it's not true, right? And it doesn't replicate. And how did they get through the system? And how come the people who did those studies are being rewarded for it? And how many and like how prevalent is this problem is it just behavioral science or does it go into other parts of science as well and mm. so that that's really the focus of the channel now is to explore that idea and i'm really at the beginning of a new journey on this youtube channel where i'm looking at this new type of topic i'm learning a lot almost like i was in the beginning with behavioral science like i don't know anything but i'm learning every single week with each mm -hmm. video i'm learning and so yeah the plan for the next year or two is to really dive deep into those ideas and to just really scope out the size of the problem, talk to experts who are, who've been looking at this type of thing for longer than I have. The way I see my channel now is almost like it doesn't belong to me anymore, even though it does, but like in a way I see my channel as like the platform by which we can make these problems more well-known in the world of academia and science. Having distribution, having an audience, is incredibly valuable and it's something and if you can offer it for a cause which is like 
bigger than yourself, I think it's a great mm -hmm. thing to do. And that's really what I'm trying to do here, where I think like, I'm not the most knowledgeable person about this subject of academia and academic fraud and all that. But what I have is an audience, an audience, an audience who's willing to listen and an audience who wants to, who wants things to change. And that's something which I could offer to the community who does know more about, does know more than me, uh, but they don't have that kind of reach that I do. And reach is important because when enough people care about it, that's when change happens. So that I'm so happy for you. Um, I really like the point what you mentioned about like you, uh, the channel almost didn't feel like it belongs to you. Um, it feel like it feels like it's serving a bigger cause, and you're putting not like you're putting the channel above you, but the channel has grew to something that is bigger than you. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think when you take that perspective, it's hard for someone to say like, oh, like. Like I really love Pete, and I really love everything you say. Everything you say is absolute, the absolute truth, and they're tuning for every single video. But I think it's easier for a larger amount of people to say, like, I really love this channel. It really uplifts the community of like problem solvers. How do you think about behavior science? How do you start to like solve different problems and bring awareness to like whether if it's like charity, whether if it's like some kind of societal problems, whether if it's like technology, application, website, personal finances. So I think that's that's a really interesting um, perspective that you, you left us here. If you could leave a message to everyone in the world to see, what would that message mm -hmm. be? Have a reason for doing what you're doing. Is like, I think is my, my biggest message. If, if you... If you're doing things for this just because because it's easy because it's easy because it's the natural thing to do you're not you're not going to go anywhere you're not going to make any impact on the world and you're not going to last um in any kind of competitive environment the yeah to to make change to actually have an impact you need to have a reason for doing what you're doing and that let that be your north star for guiding your actions Absolutely. Thanks, Pete. Um, appreciate you for coming to the pod. I'll link on you, all, your, all your YouTube channel, your Twitter, your Instagram in the description. And thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So that is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. All the links and resources will be shared in the descriptions. And if you'd like to support the podcast, Please leave us a five-star rating on whichever platform that you're on. It would help us a ton to reach new audiences. Thank you so much for listening. And again, I see you in the next one.